This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. This week we're going to talk about PPI windfalls, revolving doors at McDonald's. We also chat about whether people keep saving secret from their partner. So first, let's discuss the big news of the week, which is that the chief executive at McDonald's was fired for having a consensual relationship with someone he worked with. Um, So McDonald's has a policy where you can't have a relationship with anyone you work with, either directly or indirectly. So Dan, have there been any other similar cases where people have been fired for these kind of things? Yes, I think because in the States, it's quite a big thing, sort of widespread policy. The one that springs to my mind would be um, Brian Krasanik from who used to be the boss of Intel so he had a relationship with someone and, and there was a policy with Intel that um, you can't have a relationship with someone who reports to you so he left and I think I, I saw an article in the Guardian saying 75% of companies now forbid relationships between an employee and someone in their chain of command so that's interesting yeah it's quite high high number I thought I found a, a equally good stat. So recruitment website Monster said that 44% of people have been romantically involved with people that they work with. Wow. I know. Blimey. I think that these you, you sort of understand why they might have these rules. I guess you can avoid situations where you might have a decision influenced by a personal bias. So if you think about if, if you're in charge and, you're, and you decide not to do something because it might affect the colleague who you're having a relationship with, you can understand why there might be these rules. But I can also see why people think actually these, these, it's a bit draconian. Yes, yeah, it feels these. a bit overbearing maybe to be making decisions about, for a company to be making decisions about your private life. Yeah. So aside from the kind of morals of it, what does this actually mean for McDonald's? Because Steve Easterbrook, the chief, chief executive, was kind of widely credited with great success at McDonald's, wasn't he? As a CEO, he was pretty well praised. He was, I mean, d- definitely. If you looked at the share price on the day the news came out, so the share price fell, that would imply the market didn't want him to go. Um, so that the person who's replacing him is an internal promotion. This is Chris Kempzinski, who, who was running the US operation. So I think the general feeling is it's going to be the same strategy as under... Easterbrook. But, and this is a big but, market sentiment has been sort of shifting towards McDonald's recently. Um, And you can see that by the share price falling even before this news came out. And it goes back to sort of third quarter results were below expectations. And its sales growth in the US in particular has been um, far below what people were hoping for. So the overseas stuff is doing quite well, but it's the US stuff is not doing very well. And I think this is troubling people because I think people sort of assume that McDonald's is a, a business that's always going to be there. It's just trucking over and it's just doing 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 what it's done for years. It's providing sort of affordable food um, in a very fast manner to, to a mass market. So what's the, have they kind of pinpointed what maybe the issues behind that slow growth in the US are? Is it people focusing more on healthy eating? Is it more competition? Yeah, I mean, competition is definitely one. So the, the, a chain in the States called Wendy's has been um, sort of saying it's going to do loads more in breakfast. And that's a big area for McDonald's. Um, Burger King has kind of been seen to be sort of streets ahead with trying to try out sort of vegan products um, and alternative stuff. I mean, McDonald's has been, um, it has been adapting so to to its credit. So what, some of the things that 
um, Steve Easterbrook has been credited for is introducing those touchscreen ordering systems. I don't know if you've been, Laura, to McDonald's recently where you can order stuff, tap tap away. You don't actually have to talk to a human being anymore. My preferred way of doing a (laughs) transaction. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He introduced all-day breakfast in America as well. I mean, that's... When I was at university, everyone was like, we'd be checking their watches going, oh, my God, it's coming up to whatever it was, half past 10 in the morning. Have we still got time to go to McDonald's for breakfast? Do you know, I didn't have my first McDonald's breakfast. The first time I had one was about three years ago. Blimey. I know. Where have what? I? I've been living under a rock. Yeah, well, I think you actually must have been. That is crazy. <laughs> but I think in, in America, they change it so you can buy breakfast all day. Now, that, and it really has had a, a, a sort of positive impact on sales. Um, so Easterbrook saw decluttered menus, introduced more fresh food. And I think one of the most important things he's done is, is sold nearly all the company-owned stores to franchisees. So that's helped to improve McDonald's corporate profit margins and cash flows. So you have to remember that if you go into the majority of McDonald's, they're, they're run by franchisees. It's not this just one overarching company who's doing everything. These franchisees sort of buy into it. Um, they pay a fee to become a franchisee and they have to ad- adhere to certain standards. Um, so this is this is quenching. So I've done some, done some maths on... If you'd bought McDonald's shares 10 years ago, um, I think if you put £10,000 in 10 years ago, that would now be worth £36,800. That's pretty good. So that's that's a total return of 268%. So that's very good. Yeah, so if you, I'll if take you, that. If you compare it to the US stock market, so I, I've, I've categorised that as the S&P 500 index, um, that would have given you £28,700. So that's, that's just over... Eight thousand pounds less, so it's it's very good, and so people who have been in McDonald's shares, um, they've been well rewarded. So now, obviously, the fear is that if you get a new chief executive in, is he going to do the same and keep rewarding people, making the right decisions, or is he going to make some big differences? Crucially, did you work out how many Happy Meals or Big Macs you could buy with the gains you'd seen over no, that ten years? Well, there's your challenge for next week. <laughs> well, well, first of all, have you ever had a Happy Meal? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Love I've, a Happy Meal. Well, if you said you've only had your one first, first what was it? First McDonald's three years ago. First McDonald's breakfast. Oh, breakfast. Okay. No, yeah. I had McDonald's before. Maybe that just shows I'm a lazy person that didn't never got up in time for the breakfast. <laughs> I say, I'm not sure they'll sell you a Happy Meal um, unless you put your shoes on your. On your knees. <laughs> no, uh, they will. I've had a happy <laughs> meal as an adult. <laughs> so, another question for you. Have you seen the film The Founder with Michael Keaton in it? No. Basically, I've not seen any films ever. So the <laughs> answer to that question is usually no, or I've seen it and forgotten it. So you, you've never enjoyed fast food. You've never seen a film. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I'm painting such a sad picture of myself, aren't I? <laughs> but this, I, I, I urge everyone listening to this podcast to go and watch this film called The Founder. It's all about the roots and history of McDonald's. And it is absolutely brilliant. So in there, they've got this the, the story of this guy called Ray Kroc, who, who became sort of the head of franchising um, at the business. And he, he sort of worked out that he was getting a 1.4% royalty on a 15-cent hamburger. Um, and that wasn't enough to pay for his salary and provide money to, to fund field inspectors so they can ensure that sort of quality standards were maintained. So he had this big break... It's not sounding ripping at the moment. You're talking about yeah. field inspectors and quality no, no, standards. No, no, no. But so so it's, <laughs> he, he was advised to set up this real estate business so that you could own the land for future restaurants um, and make sure that franchisees had to lease this land for 
their business. So and this will give him high returns and also give him control over um, an, an element of control that the lease could be cancelled if the franchisees didn't have um, enough good quality standards there. And so you, you're wondering, why, why, why are you telling me this stuff? Uh, no, the Always. F- <laughs> yeah, the, the film is really, really interesting. But um, Steve Easterbrook, the guy who's just left McDonald's, so one of his flaws in the eyes of investors and other people is he didn't have the best relationship with franchisees. And this is, and, and if you're running a franchise business, it kind of helps if, you're, if you've got your franchisees on board. They didn't like the fact that he was making all these um, decisions like introducing the touch screens and stuff because they were having to spend loads of money to keep up right. with all these growth plans. Um, and they also didn't like the fact actually he wasn't being proactive enough with changing the menu as well. So I guess, so the new guy, Kempzinski, now has to get franchisees back on site um, and work out how to attract more customers and also sort of keep ongoing with this technology rollout which is is quite important to mcdonald's future so it it, you know there's loads of moving parts with what you may think is a very simple business um but yeah yeah it it is fascinating utterly fascinating i I, you know i I think if you ask me to to pick sort of five companies in the world i want to really really look at in depth mcdonald's would definitely be on that list it's interesting that you talk about that model there of, of kind of buying the land and in, ensuring that the franchisees have to rent it back because that's a little bit like what Uber's been criticised for, which is selling the cars to the drivers and then renting them back off them. So it's interesting that there's kind of a previous version of that model. Yeah, I mean, you know, someone who owns a master franchise, um, they try and get people to buy, the franchisees to buy things off them, either that's a service or products. Like Domino's Pizza, they sell all the dough to all, all the shops and stuff so yeah i mean i guess they have to be quite clever in the way that they make money um so just before we finish up on on mcdonald's laura what is your favorite mcdonald's item mcchicken sandwich oh that didn't didn't were you thinking about that before or is that that clearly is you're buying i haven't had breakfast yet so i'm quite hungry (laughs) so do you have one to finish this segment have you got an array of mcdonald's foods for us well no i haven't got anything in in the studio for you to eat i'm afraid um i used to love their pancakes but i had had one the other day pancakes yeah they do pancakes i've always done pancakes like and then you get sort of maple syrup but i had one the other day and it sort of tasted like rubber and realized the error of my ways but hash browns are good this is what i discovered in the mcdonald's breakfast yeah hash browns great good if you've got a hangover otherwise i think it's mcflurry for me yeah mcflurry is good anyway we are (laughs) getting (laughs) off on a (laughs) this is grade a content (laughs) just listing mcdonald's items so we recently spoke to anna soffat a financial advisor about some new research about secret savings accounts so here's that interview so we carried out some research to look at how people are saving their money and it's got some interesting findings we found that among couples more than half of the uk population have a savings pot that's just for them and Of those, one in six have kept that savings pot secret from their partners. So people said they wanted to have, they had this secret pot because they wanted to have some independence or they wanted to back up in case their relationship breaks down. So firstly, Anna, do these findings surprise you? Um, No, not really. I think um, many clients that I talk to, I wouldn't say they necessarily have a secret secret but they definitely I mean we deal predominantly with women so they definitely want some independence some saving that they can go and buy presents without their partners knowing how much that costs Um, or some sense of independence if they go and spend it on a 
expensive evening out with their friends or whatever, you know, they, they can do so without it coming from sort of the joint um, spend, as it were. And so away from the kind of secret savings part, uh, half of the people that um, we questioned said that they've got savings just for themselves. So do you think that makes sense as part of a kind of bigger saving strategy to have some money that's just set aside for yourself rather than your family or your partner? Um, I think increasingly people are beginning to think consciously about how they treat their money. And so you have, um, we have clients from really a whole spectrum of where they may be in a relationship, but everything is separate. So they have a joint pot for joint spend, and they're very conscious about what that joint spend includes. And then everything else is separate, and they'll have arrangements for that. Um, to the other end where everything is joint, and everything is in one account, and it just comes out of that. But I think that level of probably trust in a relationship takes quite a while to build up. Within that, I suppose you also have, in terms of different people will have different pots for different spends in their lives. They might have a holiday pot, for example, which they're saving for. They might have a school fee fund pot. Um, So everybody, I suppose, to an extent, deal with it separately. Um, You know, not many people, I would say, can just have one pot where all the spend goes and they can keep track of everything. Um, so it's really down to individuals. So Laura, do you, is this the point where you confess that you have a very large secret savings account? <laughs> Wouldn't be very secret if I announced it on a podcast, would it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I'm in the latter group of Anna's where my husband and I have all of our money combined, which I think... Um, people my age seem to find quite weird now I think it's it's obviously something my parents had but and that generation had but I think it's more unusual maybe among younger people now yeah I think there's definitely um, a lot more thinking I think that goes into it I mean I can remember when we first got married and um, I wanted to keep some separate funds partly because I could go and buy that present or whatever I hated the thought that actually whatever I spent more on presents than anything else from memory he would know and actually that felt really weird and the fact that you've been used to dealing with your own money and then all of a sudden it goes into a pot and uh, you know I could have taken more control of it but it still felt like I was losing control for a while and then within a few years it doesn't matter anymore Um, But I think a lot more people don't necessarily see a reason for giving up that control and independence. And I've written about this a bit before, and I think some people have that separate pot, but then um, when it comes to having children, that seems to be kind of the crunch point because one of the couple, usually the mother, will take time out of work and won't have an income coming in, and that's when the finances tend to become a bit more merged. But, Dan, you've got kids and you've got separate finances, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, we, we sort of, it's probably right in saying we increasingly sort of seem to be um, doing stuff you know, financially together, but, I mean, it's... I've had I've had my own savings accounts for ages and never discuss it. Um, but now, you're a secret saver. Yeah, I think so. I don't, mm. But there's nothing to. So there's nothing negative about it. I don't think. I think it's just that it's just a force of habit. That's my account, and I just do what I want. But it's. I think with um, the idea of when you look at your uh, expenditure, that should be. If, if you're a couple, do things together and make sure you, you you get the essentials covered, and then anything else on top. I don't think there's anything wrong with a bit more financial independence. 
But I think maybe it's a, a little bit of a sign, actually, that we're not used to talking about money. I think the stats in, in England are quite shocking that we'd rather talk about sex than money, weirdly. So I think part of it probably maybe stems from that. Um, and money is probably one of those topics that actually can be quite controversial in a relationship. Um, but it is, it is interesting. I have come across um, clients that I actually that um, when they're going through a separation and all of a sudden you you know about this account, but the reality in, in financial money terms, in a way, if you are in a relationship and you're married, everything is equal, more or less 50-50. Um, but um, have you ever talked to your wife about this account? Would she know about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, she knows i got savings. I know she's got savings as well, yes. but it's, it's the same. There's nothing sort of sinister about no, it. It's no. the idea of... Um, yeah, like saying when you go to shops, you can you can buy what you want to. We, we've all, you know, I, I probably think everything she buys, she she probably spends too much, and she probably thinks exactly the same about me on our own sort of our hobbies and, yes. and things like that. Yeah. Um, but we do um, always make sure we've got enough money for for the essentials, and, yes. and what we don't do is to say I'll, I'll spend all my spare cash and then borrow from, from her. her to yes. say you know, and, and actually. It's making her savings smaller and, and yeah. my spending better. Yeah. It, we don't do that, we, and we've certainly never been like that before. But yeah. I think that's a that's a dangerous situation to get in, isn't it? So yeah, but I, I think in some ways there's a balance in there, isn't it? You have your joint spend, your joint life, as it were, that you both contribute and you agree what that contribution is, and then you have your own for your personal spend. So in a way, I suppose you avoid all those arguments about who's spending more and on things that which you don't agree with potentially. Which definitely my husband and I had when we first merged our finances. A lot of um, healthy discussions, shall we say, about who was spending money on what and yes. whether that was a worthwhile spend of money. Yes. Um, I think now, we've, after a while, we've kind of reached a equilibrium and, or maybe we just care less about it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely was a bit of a learning curve, I think. So when you talk to clients about kind of how to set up their money, do you really say that it's it's up to them and it's up to them to kind of work out what works for them as a couple or do you offer advice one way or the other? Um, I think what we tend to do is have a conversation as to how they're managing money at that point in time. And from that, usually you get to understand and learn sort of what's working and what's not working. Um, so we have had conversations where we've talked about prenups agreements, for example, or even postnups or on, on divorce, um, how things are to be, or where a couple are actually, particularly younger ones, they, they are going into a relationship. And then how, how do they want to arrange their finances? And so we do go through the options of sort of one end of the spectrum where everything is joined to the other end, pretty much everything is separate. And we talk through the options and, and usually out of that, they'll come to a conclusion as to what's likely to suit them for best. And it's not set in stone. That's the other thing you've got to remember that, you know, if you're in a relationship for a long time, things will change. So the fact you might start very separately um, sometimes that continues out of default and then something happens and you change it. And sometimes actually after a while, it sort of naturally merged like it has with you. Um, so I think probably the, the sort of best advice I would offer is to actually talk about it. Don't necessarily come to an arrangement out of default and then find that causes issues. 
um, because you'd agreed to something like, for example, everything goes joint, and then things happen and you you don't agree, you know, because that's likely to cause more issues in the relationship. Do you find that you you people come to you for help that historically that they've they've not talked about finance between themselves? It's this might be the first time that they've had a sort of an open discussion, or, or, or are people a bit more natural um, in their sort? Of- I suppose, you, again, you've got to bear in mind that we predominantly look after women. So probably 70-odd percent of our clients are women. And I think on the whole, they do tend to talk about things. Um, but they're, they're all sort of uh, women who have earned their wealth. Um, now, sometime when they go into a relationship later in life, then there may be a very deliberate conversation around how they approach that. Um but um, if we tend to have very wide-ranging conversations, so we talk about literally anything and everything to do with money. So in that sense, it always comes up as to how they deal with money. So sometime we'll meet their partners and it's a joint and they'll decide between them who does the leading in the money skate or often is, is equal. They both come to meetings. Um, very Sometimes it's, it's one 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 partner leading it but um, on the whole they tend to be pretty equal um, and how they work through money is similarly um, equal yeah because I guess that's a really interesting point is that um, you mentioned there about kind of second relationships and more and more people now will have kind of divorces and then second marriages yes. or second relationships and might pick a very different approach with how they handle their money with that net second partner than they would with their first either based yeah. on experience or based on their kind of relationship with that person yes um i mean sometimes second relationship often starts a little bit more wary and a little bit of this is mine this is yours because if you've and sometimes you're talking about two people who've had relationship before coming together into relationships so in a way you could argue they have a more grown-up approach to money um, but also they wary because of having um, if you like split assets and gone back one or two steps and then it might take a while f- uh, for them um, so you know I've got a couple in mind for example that both the second relationship children from first relationships um, and they they still are his and hers but actually in terms of the wills and everything they've sat down and sorted everything out they've agreed exactly between the children how they're going to be and it's all very equal and so in to all intent and purposes they are joint but they they have very separate elements and it's quite interesting on holidays and stuff as to who's going to spoil who um, and that's quite nice as well to feel that actually you've you've you know you've gone and and um, spent quite a bit of money on a on a joint holidays and it feels nice to be able to spoil your partner so i hope you enjoyed that interview i certainly found it very interesting thanks again to anna for joining us And finally, just when you thought talk of PPI had gone away, we are bringing it back. So the latest round of bank results showed that UK banks had set aside another £4.4 billion um, for compensation. So there was a big flurry of claims towards the end of August when the deadline for claiming was. So that's a big potential windfall coming to the UK public. So we thought we'd look at what you should do with any compensation payment. Well, what do you reckon? I mean, do, you, I think, do you treat it as free money? I suppose if if you do, most people's first thoughts would probably say, 
Holiday. Yeah. That's ho- my first thought. Holiday, Christmas presents, that sort of stuff. No, holiday, but not presents for other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, what would be, I guess the sensible thing is to, if you've got debt... That's the, that's normally the thing, isn't it? You you pay off your debts first and then think about other stuff. What? Yeah, exactly. And so um, the average payout so far has been one thousand seven hundred pound per person. So it's actually pretty sizable, particularly considering if there's if you're in a couple and you've each um, had PPI and you can claim for it. That's pretty chunky windfall coming in. Obviously, some people will be getting far more than that. Um, so yeah, there's the kind of um, general breakdown of what you should do when you get a windfall of money and you're urge to splurge it should be stopped um so paying off expensive debt is the first one lots of people have um quite a lot of credit card debt um and the average interest rate oh this is a good quiz what do you think the average interest rate on credit cards is Ah, i reckon it's about 29 percent well you're slightly over the top you're paying too much it's 25 percent it's still Um, still high they're still high really high and it's been climbing so people that have debt on credit cards or on personal loans or even overdrafts overdrafts can quite often work out more expensive um than kind of short-term loans sometimes so if you've got any of that then you should pay that off first particularly because Debt tends to build up towards Christmas, so October is kind of the starting gun for when people build up debt, um, buying Christmas presents, paying for Christmas. Um, so now would be a good time to kind of wipe any debt off that you've got and go into 2020 debt-free. Mm. Um, but then other than that, you should bolster your cash account. So everyone should have an emergency account for their yeah, cash Yeah, we've savings. talked about this on the podcast. And I actually think I recall when we did our New Year's resolutions, I think mine was to have more cash is an emergency all i need now is a ppi compensation payment (laughs) we've missed the deadline if you've not claimed so (laughs) we should go back actually and and look at our new year's resolutions and hold ourselves to account for those yeah um but yeah so you should build up a kind of cash power and this is um it can vary it can be for smaller things so if your heating breaks and you need to get repairs done or it can be for bigger things like if you lost your job and you need some money to tide you over to pay your mortgage or your rent for a few months um so if you don't have one of those then you should look to that next and then and then you can start doing slightly more fun stuff with it so you can start investing the money or putting it into your pension which doesn't necessarily sound fun but um but i think with 1700 pounds if you are if you didn't have debts to clear and you'd already got some emergency cash i think 1700 pounds is a really good start for investing or certainly top you up because you could probably spread that across say two or three funds or something like that i think you could um you know, think about I could take afford to take on some perhaps some higher risk investments because again, it, it, you could you should be able to think of this as free money, isn't it? Because yeah. most people weren't expecting it. Exactly, to get it's it. money that you weren't yeah. planning on getting in, so you could potentially take a bit more risk with it if you wanted to and see it a bit more as kind of play money. Or you can section it out. So say you get that one thousand seven hundred pounds, you could invest some of that wisely and sensibly in the stuff that you're already investing in, and then take a, a smaller portion of it and think. I'm going to have a bit more fun with it. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I mean, have you got? What's your experience, Laura, with PPI? Have you have you had? You've fallen down the trap, and you you've you've had it, and have you claimed back? And now no. you're rich, and you're going to give me loads of money. Oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Although I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd give you loads of money if I got this windfall. Um, no, I never had. Around the time that PPI was being sold, I never had any um, debt or mortgage or credit cards, so I couldn't claim for it. Mm. which is sad. But I do know some people that just put in kind of speculative claims and thought there's no harm in putting in a claim and and seeing if I've got it. The thing that's probably worth pointing out that um, 
so a colleague said that they claimed for it just before the deadline and they hadn't heard anything back from their bank. And actually there's now, because there was such an influx of people claiming before the deadline, there's now a massive delay in terms of when you'll hear back from your bank. So if people have claimed, it's not likely that they're necessarily going to get this money before Christmas. Um, the regulator is actually saying it could be into summer next year. Oh, wow. Yeah. All of your stuff gets resolved because I think the banks have just been so flooded with an influx of people yeah i mean i i actually had it years ago um with a with a credit card account um some ppr and i, I just couldn't find the paperwork for to prove i had it i've got no i because I, I changed car provider um I, I started the process of trying to claim it back but i didn't i didn't finish it i just couldn't find it i know i probably could have called up the building society that I had it with and it's like but, all yeah. of these things isn't it it's a, it's a kind of hassle factor and with PPI I guess it was trickier because you didn't know how much you were going to get back so if you're going through loads of hassle and actually all you got back at the end of it was 100 quid or something mm. you might not think that's worth it whereas you could have been due a 20 grand payout Dan. I know I know it was quite it was really frustrating because when I, t- I remember taking it out and the person on the phone said to me what you actually want this and of course you know that that says it all doesn't it that, yeah. that they if if someone who's um you know trained on you know how, how to do this that's that you know immediately in my eyes i would i'm sure i would have had a good case for it mm. um but yeah i should have should have followed through never mind well i think it's really interesting the kind of behavioral implications of this in that people have had years and years and years to claim this and it's not certainly not a, a new thing that people are just going to have heard about but you give people a deadline which was set on on claims at the end of august and suddenly you get this massive rush of people and it's a really interesting i think look into how people deal with their finances and the kind of psyche of people of oh i'll get around to doing that and then you set an actual deadline and suddenly people do get around to doing it yeah it was all those arnold schwarzenegger adverts wasn't it so <laughs> So thanks a lot for listening this week. Um, if you listen to the podcast on the AJ Bell U Invest website, we've got a fancy new widget on there. Ooh. I know, it's exciting. Um, where you can rate and give feedback on the podcast. So please do do that if you are accessing it there. Um, or you can leave a review of us wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps other people find us. And we will see you next week. Thanks. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.